0: and welcome back to Seen and Heard. Uh, This is Allison Tristo, your community field rep at Western United Dairies. Uh, Today we have a little bit of a different episode. Tony Raimondo did a labor webinar for Western United Dairy members, and we're going to go ahead and air that here so you can always come back to it. There's some really good information uh, on there in regards to labor laws, so let's go ahead and tune into that.
1: Hey folks hope you had a great week movement in dairy markets were not too encouraging this week we had a couple reports that didn't help too much we started off on tuesday with a global dairy trade out of oceana all indices moved lower uh, featuring some reduced international demand powders in particular were hit pretty hard that carried over into our non-fat dry milk market which fell to a dollar 42 for the week that was down seven cents The lowest price we've seen since back in October of 2021. We saw that block barrel cheese inversion uh, try to continue to get worked out. Uh, It happened by uh, barrels coming down again this week, down three and a half cents to 209. Blocks gained uh, three quarters of a cent to 205.75. So we have corrected that inversion quite a bit. On Thursday, we had a milk production report for the month of September. The figure did come in much larger than expectations, with US output up 1.5%. Most major uh, producing regions were up, led by the Southwest at plus 4.4%, and the Midwest up 2.3%. California, we eked out a 0.5% gain uh, even after getting hit with that heat wave in early September. Our milking herd is now larger than year-over-year levels. Um, mind you, last September was when the herd started reducing quite a bit. We are up now, though, however, 6,000 head year-over-year, so we've got a bit more cow power moving forward, to in the year. That report was also viewed a bit bearish. Markets lost a little bit in the aftermath. Our first quarter milk futures declined again this week. We're now down to the lowest price since back in August. Class three closed at 19.69 per hundredweight, and class four at 20.73 per hundredweight. A couple announcements this week. We did hear about the sign-up period for the Dairy Margin Coverage Program, or the DMC. That's a program you can sign up through your FSA office. Uh, You have until December 9th to do that. Please reach out if you have questions. Um, For most folks, uh, selecting that 950 margin on the first 5 million pounds of milk per year is probably the best option. We figure that covers about 225 cows. So if your dairy is larger than that, you may wanna look at some other risk management options. Um, I will be holding a webinar on Friday Uh, to walk through markets as well some risk management options. So please uh, reach out or look for um, links to that if you'd like to join in. Have a wonderful week.
2: Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. My name is Anya Radaba. I'm the CEO of Western United Dairies. I'm very happy to see so many of our farmers joining us. Um, I will introduce a a gentleman who does not need any further introduction, uh, Tony Raimondo. Many of you know him, you've worked with him, and he's a staple in our dairy labor scene. And we're very happy to welcome you, Tony.
3: Thank you very much. I really appreciate everybody being here. All right, so um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, introducing myself as Anya was nice enough to say who I am. And I think most people um, Already know me. Uh, the purpose of today's presentation is to give you guys a pretty quick update on um, what's going on with labor law uh, as relevant to the dairy industry. I'm I'm happy to take questions. As Anya said, I think it's probably easiest to hold them to the end. Um, but you can also, if you want to not forget it, you can throw it in the chat, and I'll make sure that I do not sign off until we've answered everybody's questions. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Yes, the the legal disclaimer, as always, is that. Uh, I take no responsibility for anything I say that's wrong and I take all the credit for everything that I say that's right. But uh, in all seriousness, um, these is, this is general information and um what what we're trying to accomplish here is to give that general information if you guys have specific questions about something particular related to your dairy we can either talk about them at the end today or my um cell phone number and my office number were on the materials you guys can always reach out to me you get free consultation time as part of your membership with uh, west united dairymen you can also reach out to me through your field reps I'm always available to you guys and always happy to answer those uh, particular problems that that may come up. And if it is something that involves uh, more work on the part of myself or the law firm that we would need to charge you for, we will talk to you about that. We'll tell you what we think it's going to cost. And then you can decide whether or not you want to retain us and whether you want to uh, expend that money. But I don't want you to be afraid to call me because you have a question. I'm not going to send you a bill without telling you ahead of time I'm going to do that. Uh, and you won't get caught by surprise by that. So please don't be afraid to to reach out and ask questions. Uh, We're always here to help. I've been putting this Mark Twain quote with this cartoon up for quite some time now, and I keep trying to talk myself into changing it, but it really does fit the landscape that we are in. We live in a time and a place of what I consider to be predatory litigation tactics um, and there's a lot of folks out there that are trying to get their hands on money out of business people and out of you guys in particular so. Problem areas for dairies really haven't changed very much over the years, we have wage and hour issues that are related to record keeping to overtime rules. Pay practices such as paying non exempt employees like milkers by a salary or a daily rate and then meal and rest breaks continue to be a challenge throughout these cases. Uh, we are increasingly seeing more and more discrimination claims based on rage, a, a rage, race, age, disability um, uh, harassment, both sexual harassment and uh, racial harassment have been in an issues. And we are increasingly seeing um, claims that are related to um, gender identity and sexual preference in the uh, or um, sexual orientation in the dairy industry. So more and more documentation, especially related to discipline and the interactive process when it comes to issues related to disability um, are important. Safety programs are important. Although um, I've been warning about the growth that's going on in Cal OSHA for a couple of years, I really think that um, the pandemic and state employees working remotely kind of pushed that down the road a little bit. But just before COVID hit, Cal OSHA did a a hiring push that led to a a massive growth in the number of folks in the agency. And at the time they were saying that dairy was going to be a targeted industry. So I think that's still on the horizon for us where we need to be concerned about Cal OSHA actions. And then probably one of the biggest areas that I get calls over the years from dairy uh, producers about is uh, workers comp, things like fraud and leave abuse. And there are things that we can do to help you to control that stuff. Go to the next slide. Just a few fun quotes here about lawyers, Um, and I think one in particular um, came from Forbes about wage and hour laws, uh, usually being the domain of specialists and this is an old quote now in 2016 wage and hour issues made front page news. The widespread attention to how employees are paid almost certainly contributed to the sheer number of lawsuits. What Forbes missed in this is the massive profits that are available for plaintiffs lawyers particularly through class action and representative litigation, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. And they mentioned that in terms of big verdicts and record settlements playing a part as success typically begets copycats and litigation is no exception. What I have seen over the years is that when I started practicing law in uh, the agricultural industry and dairy in particular, there were really only a handful of law firms that we would see that would sue uh, farmers and particularly in dairy that would sue dairy. And I kind of got to know these guys and there was it was it was sort of a closed universe now we see new folks jumping in every day this type of litigation has become a form of legalized extortion you know there's no insurance for the wage and hour claims there is insurance for the discrimination and retaliation type claims which we're going to talk about in a minute but farmers and particularly dairy farmers find themselves in this untenable situation where even there's a small violation In a class of representative case, the liability can be large and the cost of defense is large and you end up cutting your losses to try to avoid costs. And it's just an extorted settlement um, that really, really hurts, uh, especially um, small employers like dairy farmers. Um, So it's been it's been a problem for a while. It's a problem that's growing. We see lawyers now that their whole careers have been like personal, you know, personal injury lawyers, ambulance chasers, and now all of a sudden they call themselves employment specialists, and they're jumping into wage and hour law because it really is this extortion game. So we've got to start managing this risk. I don't know that we can eliminate it, but we can manage it. So the number one problem is wage and hour litigation, and there really takes two forms that we see that cause huge problems. One is class actions, and the other is the Private Attorney General Act. A class action is where a single employee or a couple of employees uh, file a lawsuit on behalf of all of the other employees for damages that are collectible by employees, meaning unpaid wages. There are certain types of penalties under the labor code that can be collected by individuals, and they try to collect that money on behalf of anybody, of I mean, of everybody that worked for the dairy over the period of the previous four years, uh, the four years preceding the filing of the lawsuit. Um, so, That's how they multiply what would be a relatively small individual claim into a large amount of money because they're talking about everybody who worked at the dairy over a four year period. The other type of litigation is what's called the Private Attorney General Act and the analogy that I've come up with that kind of explains the Private Attorney General Act is The labor code is full of all kinds of penalties and historically most of these penalties were penalties that could only be collected by the state meaning that the labor commissioner would have to audit you, issue a citation, and then collect that penalty through the citation process. What the Private Attorney General Act does is it allows an employee, if they give notice to the state and an opportunity for the state to investigate, and the state declines to investigate, which is what they normally do, it allows that employee to sue for those penalties that would normally be collected by the state. They have to give 75% of what they get to the state. They get to keep 25% for distribution to the affected employees and the attorneys get their attorney's fees. So that's where that gets very difficult. It's almost like as if if we're in a car accident and I run a stop sign and I hit you and say I damaged your car and I cause some injuries. You can sue me for your injuries. You can sue me for the damage to your car, but you can't sue me for that fine, that ticket that a police officer would write me for running the stop sign. The Private Attorney General Act allows that employee to sue the tick for the ticket. And these tickets, these citations in the labor code, these fines in the labor code are typically per employee per pay period. So they get magnified by the amount of time and the number of employees that are involved and become a tool of part of this extortion. Before this, we used to see um, a lot of Berman hearings, which are employee claims at the Labor Commissioner, which some of you may have dealt with over time. We're seeing less and less of those now because so many of these things just end up becoming lawsuits. Um, For the last few years, because of COVID, the Bureau of Field Enforcement has not been very uh, effective. That's the Labor Commissioner's investigation and citation arm. I used to do a lot of those cases, but we don't really see those. The real pressure is on penalties that occur under the labor code um, through this private attorney general act. I do think we may see these bourbon hearings take on a new life, those individual employee claims at the the labor commissioner, because a couple of years ago, they very quietly changed the law in California where attorneys can now recover attorney's fees for representation at labor commissioner hearings. It used to be attorneys weren't very interested in those individual claims because individually they weren't worth very much and they couldn't make very much money off of them because they had to take a percentage of whatever they got for the employee, but now they can get attorney's fees. And I think the plaintiff's bar, especially the small operators haven't really realized that this becomes a point of value for them. Um, so it is important to be aware that, um, we may see the the labor commissioner individual hearings become an area of vulnerability as the plaintiffs bar realizes that they can get attorney fees through those cases. Um, another interesting wrinkle is that the labor commissioner can actually provide employees with attorneys for arbitration hearings if we get um, if we force an employee's arbitration uh, arbitration agreement. To force the arbitration of a labor commissioner claim. And that's another thing that we haven't really seen take shape as of yet, but may take shape in the future. Let's go to the next slide. So, common issues, minimum wage and overtime issues arise when you have employees that are p- paid flat rates, like the daily rates or salary rates that have historically been paid for milkers. The way that California law has settled on this issue is. You can pay a non exempt employee, that's an an employee who's entitled to overtime. You can pay them a salary or a daily rate, but that salary or daily rate will only cover their regular hours and it doesn't pay any amount of money for overtime. So if you pay them a a daily or a salary, daily rate or a salary to milk cows, for example, and what you've done is incorporate the overtime hours into the calculation of that rate, none of that money will get credited towards the overtime hours. It all goes back into determining what their base hourly rate is and can actually drive up your your risk of, of liability for overtime. Record keeping still continues to be an issue at some dairies. You've got to have a time clock, and I really would encourage you to look at the available technology. There is lots and lots of digital technology where we can get employees to do things like verify that they got their meals and breaks when they clock out at the end of the day, verify they weren't injured. So we we protect ourselves against workers' comp claims through that time clock. And there's a lot of technology that we really haven't made uh, effective use of that we can make effective use of. Um, and then overtime exemptions have been um, attacked. That's been less of an issue in the dairy industry than in other parts of agriculture, because we don't really have a lot of um, overtime exemptions available to us in dairy. The um, As I'm gonna talk about in a little bit, the irrigator exemption is gone now. Um, and the primary overtime exemption that we see in dairy is the managerial exemption for herdsmen. Um, And the biggest issue there now is with minimum wage going up, you need to make sure your herdsmen are paid a salary that is twice minimum wage in order to make sure that you protect that exemption. But herdsmen typically have the necessary duties because they have that management responsibility that they can be exempt from overtime. Meals and breaks are a part of every single wage and hour case we see. uh, And it's a big problem in dairy because of uh, the fact that most dairy employees are not closely managed. It's not a factory where we can blow a whistle and stop everything for a meal break. So um, they can trigger extensive exposure. And we're gonna talk a little bit about some solutions on that today. Um, Tools and equipment are a very common claim in in dairies. You have to provide whatever is necessary for the job. Um, And really the big issues we see in dairies are rubber boots and aprons. Although the aprons we don't see as much of an issue with in in recent times, because most dairies are providing those, but I still do see dairies that are not providing rubber boots you have to provide rubber boots for your workers. Um, And we can talk if you've got questions about kind of how you manage um, the fact that these boots will sometimes disappear on you. Uh, But I don't think you can really make a plausible argument that rubber boots are not necessary to work on a dairy. Everybody wears them. uh, And I think they are a necessary part of the employment. You need an employee handbook. It's a really important part of protecting yourself. Um, I get the question a lot, well, are we mandated to have an employee handbook? No. The law does not require you to have an employee handbook, but there are lots of things, for example, like sexual harassment where the law requires you to have a policy that's in writing. So if they're gonna require you to have these written policies, you might as well have a handbook, put them in a handbook. The handbook protects you. There's no downside um, to having a handbook. We have been working for a while now with Western United to provide handbooks at a very, very low cost. Our handbooks are like a fraction of the cost of what anybody else provides them for. We provide them in English and Spanish. We will tailor them and customize them so they fit what you do at your dairy specifically. And it's a really, really useful tool. There's no reason not to have one. And we're happy to work with you through the discount that we offer through Western United to get you those handbooks at an affordable cost. Arbitration agreements are a really important part of of this protection, uh, which we can also provide to you. Arbitration agreements are agreements where you require an employee, if they want to file a claim against you, not a workers' comp claim, but a a lawsuit, to go to a private arbitrator instead of the traditional court system. And what's really important about these arbitration agreements is we can require employees to proceed only individually, meaning no class actions. And earlier this year, I think in February it was, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruled that private attorney general act claims can not only be forced into arbitration, but they can be limited to the, the, the penalties that apply only to the individually the individual employee. In other words, getting rid of that representative part of it and that extortion part of it. So I think this is something that was a huge win for employers everywhere, but especially for the dairy industry. The arbitration agreement is not a bulletproof vest but it is a huge risk management tool that you really should have. Uh, We just updated our arbitration agreements, and I believe we have gotten the most current one over to your field reps at Western United. I just spoke to somebody yesterday. Um, So Anya, we should make sure you guys have kind of our latest and greatest arbitration agreement. And if you contact our office, we do provide those to you at a discount cost, but I'll let you know, if you call your field rep or you call Western, They're going to give it to you for free because I've already given it to them. So I would, you know, I'm happy to give it to you and charge you for it. But if you go through West United, you can get that for free as part of your membership. And I would really recommend that you do that. Have all your employees sign arbitration agreements. If you have difficulty getting them to sign them, you are allowed to require them to sign it. If you have difficulty getting them to sign it, give us a call. I have a great bilingual employee who can help us figure out why they're not signing it and convince them to sign it. But it's a really, really important piece of protection. So other risk management tools, uh, record keeping, you've gotta have strict compliance with the record keeping requirements. Your records need to be easy to understand. Digital records are much better than paper records because if you do have a claim against you, there's a lot more that we can do um, that saves time and saves you money on defending the case if we have digital time records that are easy to understand. If you are still using the old card punch or card stamp time clock, You got to get rid of that thing and join us in the 21st century in the world of digital records. Uh, Over the years, I've had those manual time clocks fail. I've had records get lost. I've had them get wet in the barn where they become useless. Having things saved on the computer and backed up gives us a lot of ability to work with those records in ways that can protect you. Um, You should have in and out times for each worker. And although rounding your time your time uh, is legal in California. Since the California Supreme Court declared the rounding was legal, we've seen more rounding cases than we ever saw before. Um, So there's still some issues with rounding that I think do create liability. And I'd rather have you just pay people to the minute. If you have to make adjustments to time records, such as somebody forgot to punch out or they forgot to punch in, just make sure you keep a record that that adjustment was made and why it was made. As I mentioned er uh, earlier, the, the available technology can help on the workers comp side it can help on the wage and hour side and i would really encourage you to look at the available technology making sure that workers have an opportunity to review their time records is really really good thing to do to make sure that we can then challenge them if they claim later that the records were not accurate and in terms of the um, the daily rate to the salary pay if you know you if your workers want to have a stable check that doesn't change based on the number of hours and you want some of that incentive for them to complete the milking on time that the salary uh, tended to provide. What we've been doing over the last few years is guarantee hours agreements, which we can work with you on, where you can't guarantee them the money in, form of, in the form of a salary, but you can guarantee them how many hours you're going to provide them. So what those agreements look like is they tell the employee that they're going to be paid minimum wage to milk the cows. But we're going to guarantee them a certain number of regular and overtime hours in the pay period that works out to the salary that you want to pay them. And that's sort of our our workaround of the prohibition against salaries to cover overtime. It's never been tested in court, but I really believe that it will work because I don't see how the government can say to us, it's illegal for us to tell these workers that we're going to provide them enough hours that they can make a living. And if we don't provide them enough hours, we're gonna pay them for the number of hours that we've guaranteed them. And that way you can stabilize your payroll in a way that works for you and works for your employees, but you keep that hourly pay system that the uh, the state wants you to have. Um, I me- I'll mention again, your employee handbook is really important in policies that do things like prohibiting off the clock work, a policy that all their tools and equipment are provided, meal and rest break uh, policies, which I also recommend, that you post and you train them on. You know, you tend to do trainings on a lot of different things. I love the idea of tailgate trainings on meal and rest break rules because a lot of times on a dairy, it's difficult to control them taking the meal period. But if we can show that they were on notice, that they knew they were allowed to take the meal period, and that if they took it late or they didn't take it at all, they did that voluntarily, that provides us with a defense. And so having a record of that training is important. My meal and rest period policies provide a complaint procedure where they have an avenue to complain if they don't think they're able to take a meal and rest period. Again, the idea of that is to attack their credibility, because a lot of times what they do is they'll say, oh, well, you know, the dairy is really mean and I could never take a meal period or a rest period any day that I ever worked ever. Well, if we can show that there was a complaint procedure and they never complained, it helps undermine that credibility. Um, The other policy and practice that I recommend for everybody is a written housing agreement. You can take credit for the value of the housing that you provide against minimum wage. And I think as minimum wage goes up, that's going to become increasingly important in the industry. But you cannot take that credit without a written housing agreement where the employee agrees to the credit. Um, And then these written housing agreements can function in a lot of different ways, for example, to control who lives in the house. We've seen a lot of cases over the years where employees move their whole extended family into the house, their adult children and grandchildren and all kinds of people. You can control that through a written housing agreement of who you're authorizing to live in the housing. Um, Things like animals, you know, junk cars, noisy parties, all that kind of stuff can be controlled through a written housing agreement. So it's a really good idea to have that written housing agreement. As I mentioned, the arbitration agreements are really useful to limit exposure. The only types of claims the arbitration agreements won't cover are workers' comp claims. And then in March, President Biden signed a law that carved sexual harassment claims out of arbitration, out of mandatory arbitration. But it will prevent those representative and class actions, which are the most dangerous types of lawsuits that you will face. That's like your nuclear scenario. So we need to have those arbitration agreements so that we can cut those out. And then insurance, EPLI insurance is employment practices liability insurance. And that's insurance that protects you against um, the discrimination harassment type of claims. It will not protect you against the wage and hour claims. Although some of the policies do provide limited limited coverage for attorney's fees in wage and hour claims. So you should talk to your insurance broker about EPLI insurance. I really do think it's a good product The kind of questions you want to ask um, are whether or not you can choose your own attorney on the EPLI policy, because I do get calls from a lot of dairies who, you know, they'll have a a case and say, oh, my insurance is going to pick it it up, but I want you to handle it. Well, we're not, we don't really work for insurance companies, so we're not really on those defense panels. We work for dairy producers and and employers directly. Um, So some of the policies will allow you to choose your own attorney, some will not. So you want to make sure that if you want to choose your own attorney, that the policy allows for it. And then the other thing that often surprises people is there's such a thing as what's called a burning limits insurance policy. A burning limits insurance policy is very common with EPLI coverage. And what that means is that as you spend money on attorney's fees to defend the case, that money counts towards the policy limits. So in your typical liability insurance policy that most people are used to the attorney's fees that the insurance company spends to protect you and defend you don't count against your policy limits. So if you have a million dollar liability, general liability policy, typically, if the insurance company spends half a million dollars on attorney's fees, you still have a million dollars in coverage to cover you of any judgment or any settlement in that case. In a burning limits policy, that $500,000 in attorney's fees would count against your million dollar policy limit leaving you with only half a billion dollars of insurance money to settle the case or to cover any judgment that might be entered in the case. So you need to know if you're if you're getting a burning limits policy so you understand that when you have a burning limits policy, you want to push that carrier to settle that case early in the game because you want insurance money to settle that case, not your money to settle the case and you don't want to run up against your policy limits. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So with those arbitration agreements, we cannot shift costs. um, other than, than, you know, we cannot make the employee bear any cost that they would not bear in court. So they have to pay for their own attorney, but we can't charge them like part of the arbitrator's fee. So there's some expense involved in arbitration, but it is well worth it. They can waive their right to go to court and they can waive their right to go to collective actions. Oh, I needed to, I forgot to update this slide. I apologize. In 2022, the court, Supreme court did decide that uh, it, it will bar private attorney general act cases from court. So we can force them to arbitrate and we can force them to arbitrate individually on a PAGA case. The US Supreme Court has already said that they can be required as a condition of employment, which means they don't sign, they can't work for you. Not available for sexual harassment claims as of March, 2022. Um, And this is really the the best protection that we have for now. And I I really encourage you guys, get these arbitration agreements in, in place, whether you, Love to pay lawyers and you want to pay me to give you one or whether you want to get one for free and get it from Western United Dairyman. But please get these things in place. Next. All right. So minimum wage. We had the previous minimum wage phase in, which was going to be as of 20, This, this which was as of January 21, uh, January 1, 2022. We had at 25 or fewer employees, $14 an hour, 26 or more, $15 an hour. And as I mentioned, the exempt salaries go over with that. But we have a new change now. As of January 1, 2023, all employers, regardless of size, will be at $15.50 an hour. The poison pill of our minimum wage litigation was it gave the state the ability to increase the minimum wage without passing a new bill, which means politically, the association couldn't do anything about it, nobody could do anything about it, but essentially it allows through an internal mechanism based on the cost of living, the state can raise minimum wage within certain limits based on the cost of living, administratively. So with the inflation that's been going on, the state took the step that as of January 1, 2023, we will be at fifteen fifty dollars an hour. And that minimum exempt salary, which is what will cover your herdsmen, is $64,480 $64, annually for all employers. California law prohibits uh, the salaries that cover both regular and overtime wages for, non, uh, for uh, non-exempt employees, as I mentioned. And then remember to, that you're that you're accurately recording their time. Um, if they start working before their scheduled start time, whether you allow whether you told them to do it or not, if you allow them to do it, um, or they're subject to your control, you need they need to be paid for that time. And we don't have a whole lot of those issues on dairies, but just make sure your guys are punching in right when they come to work. Let's go to the next slide. You're hearing me ring this bell over and over and over again. The salary or daily rate will not protect you from overtime liability for a non-exempt employee. You need to make sure they're receiving their overtime pay. If um, in many cases, if you're providing them housing, the housing can be counted towards their regular rate of pay. Um, So that's a risk there. Bon- bonuses that are non-discretionary bonuses. So any sort of, of incentive based on milk quality or production or safety will also drive up your overtime liability. They get one and a half times their regular rate of pay for all hours worked per per the phase-in schedule, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, one and a half times the regular rate of pay for all for the first eight hours work on the seventh consecutive day of work within a single work week. And that's not every time they work seven days in a row. It's seven day consecutive days within a single work week. It is very common in dairy because employees often have a day off that changes from week to work week that they'll work more than seven days in a row between two work weeks. That's okay. Once you establish your work week, which unless you define your work week, your, your work week will run Sunday through Saturday. If you're on a Sunday through Saturday work week, Saturday is always the seventh day. So you're just looking at, did they work the previous six days? If so, if they worked on Saturday, then Saturday is that seventh day overtime, time. and a half for the first eight hours worked, work and double time for anything over that. And then once we get to eight hours a day and 40 hours a week on the phase in, um, you're going to have Um, the overtime there. And remember that people like your office employees, if you have office employees, um, are on an eight-hour day and a 40-hour week. As I mentioned, you got to watch out for those non-discretionary bonuses. A non-discretionary bonus is included within the regular rate of pay. A discretionary bonus like your Christmas bonus is not. It's really important if you're offering bonuses to put them in your handbooks because a lot of times we can describe the bonus in such a way that makes it very clear that it's non-discretionary and we can protect you from that overtime liability go to the next slide. So here's that ag overtime phase in summary, which still remains where it is. If you're 26 or more employees, you are on an eight-hour day and a 40-hour work week as of January 1, 2022. If you're 25 or less employees, you went to nine and a half hours and 55 in a week on January 1, 2022. If you And as of January 1, 2023, you'll be on a nine-hour day and a 50-hour week 2024, eight and a half hour day, 45 hour week. And then in 2025, you'll be at the eight hour day and the 40 hour week. Uh, A question I often get about this is how do we figure out the weekly overtime? One of the things that you want to remember is only the regular hours they work each day count towards the weekly overtime limit. So for example, once we're at January 1, 2023, only the first nine hours of the day are going to count towards that 50 hour limit. So if they work 10 hours a day, once they've worked five days, they've worked 50 hours total, but an hour hour a day of that is gonna be daily overtime. Those daily overtime hours don't count towards the the weekly limit. That's because you're already paying that as overtime as daily overtime. So you won't trigger the 50 hour limit until they've gotten to nine, until I'm sorry, until they've gotten to 50 regular hours in the week. Let's go to the next slide. As I mentioned, the irrigator exemption is gone. If you had 26 or more employees, that exemption disappeared on January 1, 2019. If you're 25 or less, we lost the irrigation exemption as of January 1, 2022. Um, And the DLSC has made that clear on their website for some time. Um, For people to be exempt from overtime, you have to have not only um, that salary that's twice regular, uh, twice the minimum wage, but you have to have duties that match a recognized exemption. Generally speaking in dairy, the only exemption that we see is the managerial exemption. Um, and that really is our herdsmen. Um, and again, we can cover people with a stable paycheck if we guarantee hours, not dollars. If you want help with that, let me know. And We're, we're happy to, we've got a template for that. And we're happy to help you set up those guaranteed uh, hours agreements for your workers. Let's go to the next slide. Another overtime problem that the other side is increasingly becoming um, aware of that I've been talking to you guys about for a long time is what I call the night milker problem. So you have a work day and a work week that you're able to define. As I mentioned earlier, most dairies either by default or by definition work on a Sunday through Saturday work week. Remember, the work week is not your pay period. The work week is the week that we are using to define all of our wage and hour issues like weekly overtime and so forth. Um, you also have a work day, and the work week can be defined in any way you want. Um, and the work week consists of seven consecutive 24 hour work days. And you can define that 24 hour period any way you want. And although there's no court cases on it, um, the labor commissioner said for years that you can actually have more than one work day in a given workplace. So when people work, a shift that's completely included within the calendar day, we just calculate overtime by the length of the shift. So if we look at a, just this is just a made up shift where Sunday, the guy works from 5 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. If we think of that as the shift, that's a nine hour shift. But you'll notice if we're working on a calendar day that cuts across two different work days. And this particular worker works 5 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. Um, as his normal schedule. But then Thursday runs over a little bit, goes to 2.45 a.m., So now we think that this person's worked 15 minutes of overtime on Thursday. Now, they've also worked 54 straight time hours. Remember, um, nine hours a day is going to be counted towards overtime. And I'm doing this on a 2023 basis for a small employer, just for simplicity's sake. So now we've got four hours of weekly overtime, which is four hours and 15 minutes of time and a half due for the work week. So what's the problem? The problem is that workday normally runs with the calendar day unless we define it in writing. Okay, if and you're going to see in a minute what that means. The solution to this problem to be able to do this by the shift is to define a workday for the night shift, and we do this in our handbooks where we give you a a, a night shift day and a a day shift day. If you move your night shift workday, so your normal workday if you're going by the calendar day is running from, you know, 12 o'clock a.m. Uh, to 1159 p.m. There's your 24-hour period. If we move that from noon and we start the workday at noon and then we go 24 hours from there, all of a sudden now we move the entire shift, that night shift, within the 24-hour workday. All right. let's. I've got some examples to show what that looks like. I know this seems a little bit confusing. Let's go to the next slide. So this is what it looks like if we don't have a night shift workday. So Sunday... Sunday started at 12 o'clock a.m. So he went from 12 o'clock a.m. to 2.30 a.m. That's two and a half hours. Then he went home. He comes back at 5 o'clock p.m. Still on Sunday. Worked until 9 o'clock p.m. Takes his lunch break for half an hour. Starts working in at 9.30. And then works until midnight, which is the end of the day Sunday. That's nine hours. Again, Monday, the same pattern follows. Tuesday, the same pattern follows. Wednesday, he comes in. Technically, at midnight, because that's when the clock shifted over to be Wednesday, and got off at 2:30 a.m. on Wednesday. Now he's off on on Wednesday, so he doesn't come back at 5 o'clock Wednesday night. He doesn't come back until 5 o'clock on Thursday night. That's 38 and a half hours off. But that doesn't count as a day off because the day off has to be an entire work day. And as you can see from this chart, which is why I've laid it out this way. This guy has hours on every single workday of the week. So the problem is when that normal pattern resumes, he comes back to work at five o'clock in the evening on Thursday, works till 2.30, till 2.45 a.m. on Friday. That's that one day where he ran over a little bit. Now on Saturday, which is our seventh day, we now have seventh day overtime on Saturday. So instead of four hours and 15 minutes at time and a half, we've got 8.2 8.2 hours at time and a half and 2.7 hours at double time. That's because there was no full calendar day off. And because this pattern triggered hours worked every single day, including that first eight hours on Saturday. So again, a night shift workday starting at noon solves this problem. And I'll show you how that works on the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. So this is my, I made this for myself years ago. This is uh, an Excel, a, a capture of an Excel spreadsheet that I use whenever dairies ask me to help figure out what their workday is. Because sometimes on 3X dairies, it gets crazy, or if we have odd shifts, it gets a little crazy. But if we're looking at a 2X dairy, this is pretty simple. And a a workday starting at noon solves this whole problem. So if you look at this, um, this actually covers a couple of days. So we've got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday laid out here. So you'll see at the top, we've got 12 o'clock AM on Sunday. That highlighted area is a workday that starts at noon. So you can see, um, this one's a little different from the example I gave you, but this one shows a shift ending at 3.30 a.m. Okay, and you see that mark where it says shift ends. Shift starts at five o'clock p.m. Now, if we went by the calendar day, you can see how it doesn't cover the shift, but the highlighted area that's in yellow shows our workday starting at noon, and ending at 3 o'clock a.m. I mean, our workday starting at noon and ending at 11 o'clock, 11.59 p.m. So our shift starts at 5 o'clock p.m. and ends at 3.30 a.m. See how the whole shift is contained in the highlighted yellow area? That's how we solve this problem. So that's why when you look at our handbooks, and I don't know if anybody else who does this we'll put this night shift work day in there. Now, if you're a 3X dairy, this is gonna be a little different and a little more complicated and make sure you let us know because we're gonna wanna diagram out your shifts and make sure they're all covered. Um, But when we do the handbooks, we do them on a flat rate, not an hourly rate. So the way that works is you pay us the flat rate and we send you a template handbook and you read through that handbook and get back to us on what your comments are. If you've got questions, my staff will work with you to help you figure out what needs to be changed in the handbook to match how you do your operation. So when you get to the workday section and you see there's a night shift workday, that's the point where you need to let us know, hey, we're a 3X dairy, is this going to work for us? And then what we're going to ask you is what are your schedules? We're going to plug your schedules into this worksheet and make sure that we have shifts defined or workdays defined for your shifts that make sure that your shifts fall within a complete workday. All right, I know this sounds very, very complicated, but that's what we're here to help with. I want you guys to be aware of it so you recognize the issue, so you can bring that to us and we'll help you get it solved. All right, let's go to the next slide. So as I mentioned to sum up, the work week is any seven consecutive 24 hour periods and the workday is any 24 hour period. Both can be defined by the employer and more than one workday can be defined. We talked about why. Monday through Sunday is the default workday under the law. In most of agriculture, and I've gotten myself in this habit because I do a lot of stuff that's not just dairy, it doesn't make usually as much of a difference in dairy, but on, on a, in a lot of harvesting operations, if you guys are involved in other types of crops and a lot of different types of agriculture, we actually use Sunday through Saturday. I'm sorry, I, this is this slide is backwards. I apologize. Sunday through Saturday is the default, and Monday through Sunday is used in a lot of areas of agriculture. This slide is backwards. And the reason why a lot of areas of agriculture use Monday through Sunday is because a lot of places work six days with Sunday is always the day off, like a lot of row crops and things like that. And so they'll use Sunday as the seventh day, because if they do work a seventh day, Sunday is a short day. In dairy, which is a 24-7 operation, it usually doesn't make a difference to go off of. So we often just use Sunday through Saturday for ease in dairy, but we can change it if you guys decide you want to change it for your dairy for some reason. But if you're involved in other crops, you might want to look at Monday through Sunday. So now I'm catching the error in the slide. I apologize for that. Go ahead and um, go to the next slide. So meal and rest breaks, again, continues to be a challenge. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to run through what the basic rules are, what the penalties are, and then I'm going to talk about how we manage these things to reduce risk. So rest breaks require that you authorize and permit 10 minutes of rest for each four hours or major fraction of four hours. Work anything over two hours is a major fraction of four hours. If the employee works less than three and a half hours, they don't need to get a rest period, and rest periods have to occur as near as is practicable to the middle of each work period. They cannot be combined or added on to meal breaks um, to make the meal break longer, and they can't be used to allow the employee to come in late or leave early, even if they want to. Rest breaks are paid time, but employees must be relieved of all duties and and allowed to leave, even if there's no time for them to go anywhere. If they carry a radio or a cell phone or anything like that, they need to not answer it or like the radio should be turned off. The penalty for failure to provide a rest period is an hour of pay at the regular rate of pay for each day that the employee fails to authorize and permit the rest break. All right, so how do we figure out rest breaks? There's some really easy shorthand on this. You figure out the number of hours the employee worked in the day and you divide it by four. Okay. The outcome of that is the number of rest breaks that they need. So we'll start with a simple one, an eight-hour day. If the employee works eight hours, we divide that by four, that's two. So they need two 10-minute rest breaks, okay? If they work nine hours, we take the nine hours, we divide it by four, that gives us two rest breaks with one hour left over. Remember what I said, anything over two hours is a major fraction of four. So one is not a major fraction of four, so we can throw that out. It doesn't require another meal, another rest break. If we go to 10 hours, we divide it by four. We have two rest breaks with two hours left over. It has to be more than two hours to be a major fraction of four. So again, we can throw away that two hours and they need two rest breaks. The minute they go over 10 hours, now we have more than two left over on our divide by four calculation. Anytime we have more than two left over, That's now a major fraction of four, and we have to give them another rest break. And you can do that no matter how many hours they work. You can do that same calculation over and over again based on their hours worked. And then that rest period in terms of that when it's supposed to occur, it's you've got a lot of flexibility on when rest periods occur. Again, it's as near as is practical to the middle of each work period. So the work, the first work period of the day starts when they clock in and it ends when they clock out for lunch. That 10-minute rest break should be as near as you can get it to the middle of that work period. And the same thing, they start another work period when they punch back in after their meal period, which go, will go until the end of their shift. The second meal period should fall as near to the middle of that as you can. You are not required to record those meal periods. It's paid time. They don't clock out for it. Um, so the most important thing there is making sure that they know the policy and you can prove that they know what the policy is. You can do that with a handbook. They sign that they received the handbook. and You can do that with that training that I mentioned. And for many years, I've had a poster that we provide to Western United, uh, which I think they still have. If not, I can give you the poster that you can print off your computer in English and Spanish and post it all over your milk barn um, right by your time clock. So there's no doubt that they knew of their rights. Let's go to the next slide. So meal breaks. Meal breaks, you have to authorize at least a 30-minute duty-free meal period after no more than five hours of work. So if they start at 7 a.m., that meal period must start no later than noon. And we do get lawsuits when people claim a violation when it started one minute late. So make sure they're starting that meal period after no more than five hours of work. If six hours is going to complete the day of work, that employee can waive the meal period. Um. The meal period is unpaid as long as it's at least 30 minutes long and the employee is completely relieved of all duty and they're free to leave the premises, even if there's nowhere to go, they have to be free to leave. If you make them stay, that's an on-duty meal period, which creates a whole other set of problems. Um, If they have to stay on the premises, you have to provide a suitable place for them to eat. A lot of the dairies that I've seen, I think most dairies that I've seen have some type of place where people can eat either in the barn or around the area you know, put a picnic table under a tree if you want to. Um, if you're going to provide a refrigerator for employees to keep their uh, their food, uh, just make sure you're not storing medications in that same refrigerator. It's not technically illegal, but it's a bad look. And I'd rather see you have a separate fridge for the employees to have their food. Um, this employee obligation is satisfied by making the employee making sure the employees are actually relieved of all duty, performing no work, and free to leave if they want to. Again, a lot of dairies are out in places where there's nowhere they could go in 30 minutes and get back, but they have to be free to leave. You know, they want to go down the road and sit under a tree and have their lunch. Technically, they can. The meal period has to have the time of day recorded. They have to clock out and then clock back in at the end of the meal period. You should not have a timekeeping system that automatically deducts for the meal period, and you cannot round the meal times. Even if you round your start and end times in the day, which although I don't recommend against it, I don't recommend in favor of that, Um, it is legal to round the start time and the end time of the day to the nearest five, 10 or 15 minutes, but you cannot round the meal time under any circumstances. Let's go to the next slide. So our risk management, uh, guidance for meal and rest breaks is number one. Um, what your obligations are to do are to notify them of their rights, provide a real opportunity and not interfere with their ability to take it. So notification is notifying them of their right to meals and breaks have a written policy, and don't forget to have that written policy include the second meal period. They are entitled to a, entitled to a second meal period anytime they work more than 10 hours. Um, it is not five hours after the first meal period. The first meal period can happen earlier and make the second part of the, of the, of the workday longer, and they are not entitled to a second meal period five hours later. They're only entitled to the second meal period when they work over 10 hours. So first one after no more than five hours, second one after no more than than 10 hours. They can waive the second meal period if they took the first one and they don't work more than 12 hours. So up to 12 hours, they can waive that second meal period. If they work over 12 hours, the second meal period has to be mandatory. So have that written policy in your handbook. As I mentioned, post it and do tailgate trainings for both supervisors and rank and file employees and document those trainings. We've got flat rates to do bilingual training on that kind of stuff. We're happy to have someone come out and do that, that training and it's all discounted for West United members. So if you have questions about um, how to get that training done or you need help getting that training done, let us know and we'll make sure we can take care of it for you. You're going to provide them with a real opportunity to take it, which means you have to consider workload and manage production. Providing an opportunity to take it is usually not a big problem in dairies, although it can be an issue in some dairies where we have um either 3x or split shift or where there's a carousel the employees have to be able to walk away and take that meal period so if um if you have a a carousel the employees can't walk away from or you have a 3x dairy where it's hard for them to get it done in eight hours if they take that meal period or you have a split shift situation and you can't schedule the split shift within the five hour limit for the meal period you may have to have a relief procedure. And if you have a relief procedure, and most of the dairies that need to do this already have a relief procedure, you need to put it in writing. Explain to us what it is, and we'll plug it right into the handbook. That's a great way to show that you have a relief procedure and you're providing that opportunity to take it. So you need to manage your production. And if you do have relief for meals, that that relief is in writing in your handbook. And then the last thing is do not interfere with their ability to take it, which we rarely see in dairies, but You know, sometimes we have these issues where, you know, uh, people can't resist the temptation to keep their guys working. If they need to take that meal period, they want to take that meal period, they get to take it. You are allowed to have an on-duty meal period agreement. And I actually recommend on-duty meal period agreements for dairies because sometimes emergencies happen on a dairy. You're dealing with live animals. You're dealing with a highly perishable product. You know, if you have a chiller go down or you have uh, a cow that has some type of health emergency, right? You can't necessarily let people take a meal period when that happens, but the on-duty meal period agreements are an emergency situation. They're not just a solution for this on an ongoing basis. That's for that scenario where something happens and they can't take the meal period. And what the on-duty meal period agreement says is that they understand that there are times where the nature of their work is going to prevent them from being relieved of all duty for the meal period. And if something like that happens, they may not get that 30 minute meal period. It's good to have that on file for those emergency situations. But again, it's not going to be for your regular uh, your regular practice. It's compliant procedures that are going to protect you. Now, there is no violation if an employee freely and voluntarily chooses to skip, delay, or, short, or shorten a meal or rest break. And our milkers do that all the time. Hey, let's just work through and get it done. And it's very difficult in dairy to control that, especially at night when you're not there. That's why all of this risk management is important, that we have a policy. We have a complaint procedure. We provide them an opportunity to take it. We've got a relief procedure available for them. We've trained them that they take it, because then if they skip it voluntarily, we can argue that it's voluntary. And one of the biggest advantages that we have in dairy cases is that usually the other workers will tell the truth. It's been a very rare occasion where I can't find other milkers on the dairy who are willing to testify, yes, sometimes we skip our meal periods, but we do it because we want to, not because the dairy makes us. And where we have an issue of why somebody missed a meal period, it becomes them very very hard for them to certify a class action because then these come down to individual issues on individual shifts, which are not suitable for class certification. So um, again, none of this stuff is is any sort of magic bullet that's gonna protect you, but it does reduce risk. And that's really what this is about. When it comes to labor, there is no elimination of of risk. And if some consultant or some attorney tells you that they can bulletproof you and you'll never have a risk, they're lying to you because unfortunately the way that it works in California is the biggest risk that you can take in a business is to give somebody a job. And so we look to manage those risks and reduce those risks and put you in the best position uh, possible that we can uh, in the event that a lawsuit does get filed, but there is no magic bullet. Go ahead to the next slide. The uh, California Supreme Court decided last year that the premium for a meal a missed meal period or a rest break, which is one hour at the employee's regular rate of pay, is not simply their hourly rate, but the regular rate of pay that is used for overtime purposes. So that's where, as I mentioned, you got to watch out for bonuses. Make sure your bonuses are defined in the handbook and we can help you define those bonuses in such a way that we keep them discretionary and they don't drive up your regular rate of pay. Go to the next one. Oh, by the way, before I forget, this question came up the other day um, and I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it today. Um, Now that minimum wage has gone up and we're seeing a lot of dairy employees making minimum wage, you need to be aware that if your employees do work a split shift, which means there's a break in the shift of anything over an hour, um, you have to pay a split shift premium, which is just an amount of money that's equal to one hour at minimum wage. So it'll be 15 come January. Um, if they live on the premises, then that split shift premium doesn't apply. And if they make more than minimum wage, you can offset it by the amount of minimum wage. But, you know, for a while there, we had a time when a lot of dairy employees were making more than minimum wage and we didn't have to worry that much about this split shift premium. But now I'm seeing, you know, with minimum wage having gone up, I'm seeing that very few dairy employees are making more than minimum wage. So just if you do have people working split shifts, make sure you understand how to pay that split shift premium. Again, you're they're exempt from it if they have housing on the premises, um, you know, at the work site, meaning at the ranch. and um, it doesn't add one hour to their day for overtime purposes. It's just another, it's a, it, It's an amount of money that's measured by one hour at minimum wage. And if you have questions about that, just let me know. We talked about tools or equipment earlier. Um, if you have uniforms, which I used to see more in dairies, I don't see very much anymore. Um, if they're required, you have to provide them. And if you provide them, the cost of cleaning is on you. Um... And the most common tools and equipment issue that we have is rubber boots on dairies. The way that I handle that is the policy that I suggest for dairies is that um, you provide new boots for the guys once or twice a year from from talking to to dairy producers over the years. Once or twice a year really seems to be a, a reasonable basis for providing them with the rubber boots. And then if the boots get damaged for some reason, give them the ability to turn their old boots in And get a new pair, because I've never met a dairyman who, if somebody's boots got a hole in it or there was some kind of problem that was legitimate, minded replacing them. You know, it's the boots that disappear that bother people. And, you know, sometimes guys will sell these things. So uh, the way you prevent that is that if if for some reason their boot, they they need their boots replaced out of cycle, just make them turn in the old ones to you so you can see the damage that's on. And again, you can put that in a handbook. Let's go to the next slide.
2: Hey, hey, Tony, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt your flow here. Um, We did have a question in the chat semi-related to this topic. Sure. The question is, is a payment twice a year with an acknowledgement that it is for necessary items for work like rubber boots, aprons, cell phone use? I think what he's trying to say is acceptable versus actually purchasing those items.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, you can do it by giving them an allowance for it. Um, So but what you would need to do with that is, you know, is document that that's something if you were going to do it that way, we'd want to put that in the handbook. So the policy is very clear. And then you should have them sign something that they received that allowance. And the thing you have to remember is the pay period where you pay that allowance, you have to include on their check stub that they received the allowance. And that's not subject to the to, to the withholdings and taxation. Um, that their regular wages are, but it would have to be a line item on that check stub that they, you know, that they received a boot allowance. Um, The cell phone allowance is an interesting one, and I'm actually glad you brought that up because, of course, if you make employees use their cell phones, and we have a lot of employees that we talk to by cell phone, um, if an employee has to use their cell phone for work, you have to pay for the cost of that. And of course, it's really hard to figure out what that cost is, the way that cell phone plans work these days. And the best way to do that is by a stipend. Um, and usually what people do is they do the cell phone stipend by, you know, some small amount of money, basically in every, you know, in, in, in every check or in one check a month, you know, $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, something like that. And you can show that on their check stub as a line item for cell phone allowance. But again, that's not going to be subject to withholding. So that would have to be, um, Uh, in addition to their net pay, it's a separate lump sum amount because they don't get taxed on an expense reimbursement. Thank you.
2: And if anybody else has additional questions, um, please feel free to drop them in the chat. Yeah, Um, Please
3: feel free. I'm happy to be interrupted. That's not a problem at all. Um, uh, These are really, those are good questions. Like I said, that one was a great one because it also um, sparked the question about um, cell phones, which is an important one for everybody to be aware of. Check stubs carry heavy penalties if you don't do it right. There are two penalties if your check stubs are not perfect. One is $250 per pay period per employee to the state. That's that PAGA, Private Attorney General Act penalty. Then there's also one that's collectible by the employee, which is $50 for the first pay period and $100 for all other pay periods to the employee themselves. So they can double up on that if they sue you. This is one of the reasons why we want to get rid of those representative actions and we want to keep them in arbitration. And there are some defenses to check check stub claims, but the best defense to a check stub claim, of course, is going to be compliance. So um, all deductions have to be listed. And if you have any deductions other than the mandatory ones for taxes, you cannot deduct money from an employee's check without their signed authorization. So for example, if you're deducting rent from housing um, from an employee's check, they have to have a signed agreement, and that can be in your housing agreement um, if you want it. And there are some issues related to charging people rent for housing. I think it's a great idea to charge rent for housing. I like charging rent better than I like the minimum wage credit, and it's a way for you to kind of get some money back on your housing. Um, but if you are going to charge rent, I'd actually much rather have you do it by making them pay you than, than taking it out of their check. But if you need to take it out of their check, it has to be authorized in writing. Inclusive dates of the pay period, The employee's name in the last four digits of their social security number, the employer's name, employer identification number and address. Double check to make sure your check stub is printing correctly and the address is not cut off and really make sure other information is not cut off because we've seen that a few times. Um, This is more of a general agricultural issue, but if you are a farm labor contractor, you have to include the identity of the grower or if you use one. You know, if you have um, other other types of commodities you're in where you're using a farm labor contractor, be aware they have to put your identity on their check stub. Um, hours work and applicable rates of pay, both um, the and for if you're doing a a guaranteed hours agreement, we like to put both the actual and the promised hours on the uh, on the check stub. It's a great way to do that, uh, and it makes sure that you're in compliance. Gross wages, net wages, uh, again, if you're in other commodities where there's peace rate, you have to put that data on there. Bonuses would have to be lifted on listed on there. their sick leave balance has to be on there. And um, the COVID uh, supplemental paid sick leave was extended. So if they do have supplemental paid sick leave available to them for COVID, you have to have that listed on the check as well. That was supposed to expire in September and the state uh, extended that. Let's go ahead to the next slide. We talked a little bit about um, timekeeping technology uh, earlier. So I'm not gonna go through this in detail. Digital time clocks are amazing now. There are portable ones. There are palm print fingerprint, which prevents employees from punching in for each other. Um, They can include a survey before clocking out. So like, as I mentioned before, you know, were you injured today? Yes or no. Did you take all your rest breaks today? Did you take your meal periods today? Yes or no. Um, You can put apps on people's uh, smartphones. If you're paying them a cell phone stipend, you can use that as, as an opportunity to put an app on their phone so they're clocking in and out. And especially for employees that are moving around the ranch, and maybe they're not near the clock, um, that's, that's a, um, you know, people like irrigators, that's an effective way for them to keep accurate time records. And, you know, there's just less vulnerability with, with digital time records. And then if we do have to defend you, there's more we can do efficiently um, to examine and analyze those records in ways that can help defend you, defend you in the case. And as I mentioned before, I think rounding is really risky and it's better to just pay to the minute. And of course you can't round the meal time. I just saw a question popped up. Uh, the COVID pay, hold on to that question because we're gonna come to some stuff about COVID pay here in a minute. Um, let me double check myself here. Make sure I've got that in front of me because I can't remember how much detail I included in this presentation. If you guys have questions on COVID sick pay or COVID issues, Yeah, that's 26 or more employees covered by the uh, COVID sick pay. See, that was the very next slide. I'm going to go really quickly through the COVID sick pay. If you guys have any questions or concerns about COVID sick pay, the best thing you can do is call my office. I have a young attorney who works for me who's great. His name is Kevin Piercy. Kevin is our in-house COVID expert and has been since the whole pandemic started. So he's the best person to call for any COVID sick leave problems and he'll be just identify yourself as a Western United member and he'll be happy to help you. But the COVID sick pay that um, was just extended is for 26 or more um, employees. Uh, And there are two categories. So it's a total of 80 hours and two weeks, but it falls into two different categories. It was supposed to expire in September, but it's been continued till the end of the year. Category one is when the employee themselves is subject to a quarantine or isolation period um, related to COVID-19. They can use the the, the supplemental sick leave to cover that quarantine or isolation. If they have been told to isolate or self quarantine by a healthcare provider, or they're attending a doctor's appointment for themselves uh, or a family member to receive a vaccine, but they are limited to 24 hours per vaccination. And that's for the appointment itself or side effects. Let's go to the next slide. If they're experiencing symptoms, as I mentioned, from the vaccination, which is limited to 24 hours, Uh, if they are experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and they are seeking a medical diagnosis, they can get this sick leave. Um, Or if they are caring for a family member, as defined by law, who is subject to a quarantine or um, uh, isolation order, or if they're caring for a child whose school is closed, which doesn't seem to be too much of an issue anymore, but, you know, we'll see where we end up. Um, category two is for people who have tested positive. So if you think about it, category one is an isolation due to exposure or an isolation due to a healthcare recommended uh, health providers recommendation or for the vaccine. Category two is for a positive test and you can require uh, documentation of the positive test and not necessarily a home test. It can be documentation from a doctor and you have to pay if you mandate the employee to be tested. Um, and it's not clear, but I don't think you have to pay for the family member's test unless for some reason you say, hey, if you're if you're quarantined because of an employee's a, a family member's test, then we want you to get a test for the family member, but I don't see how you can enforce that, so I would recommend against that. Um, it does appear that there are some limits there. you know, the five hundred and eleven dollars limit would apply to the second category, um and there is a notice that you have to post for that. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. You cannot require them to use any of their vacation time, PTO, or other sick leave before they use the uh, supplemental sick leave. But you can, if you paid supplemental sick leave before January 1, 2021, um, you can count that to bring down their balance. And the available leave has to be on their check stoves. uh But it does not ap- it, it does not appear that category one leave, the recommendation of a healthcare provider. Um, can necessarily be denied due to lack of documentation, but I do think you can ask for documentation. Um, If that comes up as an issue, call us and we'll try to help you through that. Um, It is retroactive to January 1, 2022. We're far enough in the year that the retroactivity hasn't really been an issue. It is going to extend at least through the end of the year, and there is no payroll tax credit for it at this point. So uh, maybe that'll change, but we'll have to see what happens um so if you do i really recommend with the covid leave if there are questions about it if it comes up we haven't gotten a ton of questions on that on dairy but if it does come up um call us and we happen to have kevin help kevin help you out with that let's go to the next slide just real quick on um some case law on covid um we are starting to see lawsuits kind of spiral out of the covid situation this one won't really um you know this one um It's sort of an oddball involving seized Candy. It's sort of the most disturbing one that I've seen. Um, An employee's husband died from Covid, and the employee claimed that she got um, Covid at work and then gave it to her husband, and then he died. Um, The employer said that this claim had to fall within workers' comp, or what's called a derivative injury doctrine. Workers' comp is an exclusive remedy, which is much, which when when there's deaths involved, actually protects the employer. And you'd rather see a fatality end up in workers' comp than in regular court. And they tried to push this over into uh, workers' comp, um, to basically to keep it off their liability insurance. And the court said no. If an employee's, if an if an employee gets COVID at work and they give it to a family member, and the family member dies, in theory they can sue the employer. So my best advice here is make sure your liability policies are are, uh, in place and you've got plenty of um, general liability insurance. I don't think we've seen a rash of these cases, but they certainly are a uh, a possibility. Um, You're gonna want an insurance carrier to be able to defend that rather than defend that on your own dime. I go to the next slide. We have been getting a lot of um, questions about CalSavers. CalSavers is a, um, a retirement plan um, that is uh, employer. Employers are essentially required to provide the employee um, information. You have to register for the plan, and that's for all employers now. Um, if you have five or more employees, you were supposed to um, that you were supposed to uh, uh, comply by June thirtieth, twenty twenty two. If you're less than five employees, you don't have to worry about it, but it doesn't cost you anything. You just have to register for it. And I've given you the link here where you can register. So go ahead and register, hand out the forms, and then it's up to the employees whether they want to participate or not. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, CPAs are a really good resource for this, so I really recommend you talk to your accountant. A lot of insurance brokers have programs to help people out with Cal Savers. Um, That's why I haven't seen that many questions for it, because a lot of these other professionals are providing help with this for free. Um, We're, of course, happy to help you with it, but um, we'll try to help you find some free resources to help you if if there are questions about CalSAVERS. Let's go to the next slide. I'm not going to go through this in detail. The main takeaway from this is that since 2016, you have been required to have a written um, and fairly detailed um, harassment policy, anti-harassment policy, That that allows people to that covers all the protected categories. It allows um, employees to complain, provides that complaint procedure and explains kind of what you're going to do in response to a complaint. We have these policies built into our handbooks. So again, I'm going to continue to encourage you to uh, to get a handbook. Let's go to the next slide. Um, You have to assure the employees that you're going to take their their complaints seriously. You'll keep them as confidential as possible. Instruct supervisors to report harassment. Um, You do have to disseminate the policy by providing a printed company with with a signed acknowledgement, providing it by email, which doesn't seem very viable for a dairy, um, or post them on a company intranet, which, again, doesn't seem very viable for a dairy. You can discuss it at an orientation session or sort of any other way that makes them make sure that they receive it. But in my view, the best way is to put it in a handbook and have them sign that they've received the handbook. Um, it is important to provide harassment training, which um, we've been working regionally with um, West United to try to come up with some plans for how we can provide sexual harassment training for the the, the industry. And I think, um, you know, I've got a, a Spanish speaking employee who's qualified to provide this training. And I think if we can, um set up some large group trainings that are staggered over time and schedule so we can kind of catch everybody's employees um, and catch everybody's management. Um, I think there that that's something that we can viably do and do at a cost where you know, we can divide that cost up against everybody who attends, and it'll be a very small cost um, for each person, you know, each dairy if we can get a um, large number of dairies to participate. So I really would encourage you to talk to your field reps and talk to Anya because I would love to be able to provide kind of some mass trainings for the for the industry and get everybody trained up in, in, in sexual harassment prevention. Um, so we've got that as a, uh, a risk management tool in place as well. Let's go ahead and um, go to the next slide.
2: Hey, Tony, there's a question yeah. in the chat.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I don't know if you can see it. It says, is CalSaver eligible to new employees at day one or 30 days
3: after hire? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, and the reason for that is because I haven't really concerned myself with Cal Savers because you don't have to contribute to it. If the employee registers for it, you know you have to deduct whatever they want to divert to the retirement plan. But I candidly, I tend to concern myself with things that that actually cost the employers money. Um, I would suggest you take a look at the Calsavers website or, um, Ask either your accountant or your broker, or if you have trouble um, getting those answers, I'm happy to look into it for you and not charge you for it. Um, just give me a call either at the office or on my cell phone number, um, and I'll get you an answer for that. But I don't know that answer off the top of my head.
2: And um, I actually think Western does. I think we've we've done quite a few webinars now on CalSavers, so I'm writing back. I will email that answer out. Um,
3: Okay. next slide. Now, this one, I think, is really important for dairy. So we've had since the 90s, the Family Medical Leave Act, which is a federal law that covers employers with 50 or more employees at a work site or within 75 miles of a work site. So a lot of dairies are under 50. So we haven't really worried about this law, but it requires 12 weeks of unpaid leave for um, an employee or the employee's family member's um, serious health condition. We've had really since around the same time, the California Family Rights Act, which is the CFRA, which provides for the same thing. Um, 12 weeks of unpaid leave. And it used to also be for employers of 50 or more. A couple of years ago, um, since January 1, 2021, That 12 weeks of unpaid leave applies to employers in California of five or more employees. And many dairies never had to comply with CFRA before, and so they were never really aware of this law. So the employee's eligibility, they have to work for you for 12 months with 1,250 hours work in the 12 month month period preceding the leave. Um, They can take the leave intermittently and they don't need to re-qualify for each portion of intermittent leave. Uh, It's 12 weeks within that 12 month period. And one of the things that concerns me for dairies is that one of the triggers is bonding with a new baby. And I've gotten a lot of questions over the years and issues over the years where Dario will call me and say, hey, we've got a milker who wants to take a month off because his wife had a baby and we can't spare him for that long. Historically, we could say, hey, you can't, you don't have to give him that month, you know, try to work it out with the guy where he takes less time off because we understand some, you know, he had a baby, but you need him too, and see what you can work out that's reasonable. Now, if he wants that month off, he can take that month off. It's it's unpaid, Um, you have to continue any health insurance as though he was fully employed, but um, he can take that unpaid month if they want to. So that's something to be aware of, that you do have to require, you do have to allow employees to take certain amounts of time off for medical leaves. Again, without pay, but um, uh, there are medical certification requirements. Um, It's a fairly detailed law And what I would suggest is if you guys want to get more information about this law, um, let Western know, and I'll do some webinars or seminars specifically on this leave and how it works, uh, and what type of documentation um, you're allowed to get from the employees and from their doctors to make sure that they're not abusing it. Um, But it is something that we do need to be aware of in the industry, that uh, employees have a wider range to get medical leave than ever before. Let's go to the next slide. All right, so a couple of differences between the FMLA and the CFRA. Is the FMLA um, covered disability due to pregnancy? The CFRA does not. California has a separate pregnancy disability leave law. Um, So if you do have a female employee who gets pregnant, um, we have a pregnancy disability leave law that, um, that covers that. Now, if a wife has a, disability due to, or, you know, a serious health condition due to a pregnancy, and the husband is needed to care for her, that would trigger his CFRA rights. So, you need to be aware of that. Um, um, California has a separate law for exigency related to military service. The FMLA covers that federally. Um, um, The 12 months of service do not need to be consecutive. So, somebody worked for you uh, for a few, you know, for, Um, you know, six months, and then they leave, and then they come back sometime later and work for you again, that original six months counts under the CFRA. But remember, the eligibility, the 1250 hours that they had to work in the year preceding their request for leave is separate from the 12 months to just be eligible. So you sort of have this multi-layered, are they eligible? Remember, they have to have work for you for a year, and they have to have worked 1250 hours in the 12 months preceding the leave. So you gotta do these things very step-by-step. So if you have these issues come up, definitely call us and we'll help walk you through it. Um, You have to designate the leave within two business days of getting the request. And you can make them request in writing. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do with this. And we have handbook policies that cover this. Um, uh, For baby bonding, um, you know, that covers both parents. Um, and um, the FMLA is a little more restrictive as to who's a, a healthcare provider. Let's go ahead to the next. CFR is also broader as to who is a family member. So there's also, you know, some stuff for um, additional people that are not covered by the FMLA as far as family members. So remember, they have to be been employed for 12 months. They have to work 1,250 hours within the months preceding the the, the leave. The hours worked include overtime, but not holiday holiday vacation or other paid time off. It's actual hours worked. Uh, And exempt employees will be presumed if they have worked for 12 months to have covered the uh, the 1,250 hours. Let's go to the next slide. So the birth of a son or daughter, adoption or foster care placement of a child, care for a spouse, child, or parent, CFRA now includes parents-in-law, employees own serious health condition, Um, CFRA covers domestic partners, but that has to be a registered domestic partner. We don't really see that much in dairy. Um, The baby bonding can be limited to 12 weeks where um, where where, um, both parents are employed by the same employer. It's kind of a unique circumstance. Let's go to the next one. Serious health condition is going to be something that includes inpatient care in a hospital or other type of medical facility. Um, or continuing treatment by a healthcare provider. So it doesn't have to be hospitalization. It just has to be ongoing treatment. Um, the employee is unable to perform the functions of their position. When a healthcare provider says they can't work at all, they're unable to perform the essential duties of their job according to the ADA. Um, unless there's complication, ordinary illnesses like common cold, flu, upset stomach, uh, headaches, Those are not normally, you know, routine dental stuff. Those are not normally serious health conditions unless there's something extreme. Substance abuse can be a serious health condition, but only substance abuse treatment. So if somebody comes to you and says, I need to go to rehab, you can offer, you might have to authorize the paid time off for rehab, but it doesn't cover, hey, I can't come to work because I'm hungover or I'm drunk. Go to the next one. So it's up to 12 work weeks in a 12-month period, Um, and that's going to be kind of based on their schedule. If they work five days a week, they get 60 days of uh, leave, and you can kind of figure out how that works. Um, There's little tricks to it. You can use either a calendar year, anniversary year, or a rolling 12-month period for the uh, the 12-month period that's used to measure how often they can take leave. Um, If you don't pick one, this is why you want to have a handbook then they get to use the one that's most beneficial to them. We always use the rolling 12 month period because that just means that the 12 months moves every time they take a leave. So basically we look back from the date they request leave and we look at if they took leave within the preceding 12 months. So that's the only one that prevents them from stacking leave. So the calendar year is really unfavorable because if you use the calendar year, right, then if they took 12 months of leave in December, Then they get a fresh 12 months, you know, a fresh 12 weeks starting in the first 12 weeks of 2010, which is not really fair. So the rolling method is the best method. That's what we put in our handbooks. So let's go to the next slide. The medical certification that you're entitled to does not have to identify the serious health condition. It just has to certify that there is one, its duration uh, and their inability to work. It's a little more limited for the family member, but there is certification. If they request an extension, you can request a recertification. Um, and uh, you can require a deadline of 15 days for them to get you the certification, but you can't terminate if they're making a good faith effort. And basically, it's the doctor that delays. Um, and you can uh, you can terminate employees who unreasonably fail or refuse to provide uh, certification. But I wouldn't do that without getting legal advice. And by the way, you can require them to update their status and provide work restrictions as well. So let's go ahead. and. uh, um, You can't challenge a uh, certification for a family member. You can challenge an employee's serious health condition certification uh, through a second opinion. uh, But you have to pay for it. It can't be somebody that you regularly hire uh, as the doctor. Um, and if the second opinion differs from the first, then you guys can agree on a third provider whose, whose decision will be binding, and then you you bear all the cost on the second and third opinion. Let's go to the next one. They do have posters that are mandatory. You need to have a policy and a handbook, and notice has to be given in a language spoken by the workforce, and again, we provide our handbooks in Spanish, so it covers you there. Go ahead. Um, they they have to provide you at least with verbal notice, and if they provide you with verbal notice and you require written notice, then you have to give them the necessary forms um, to request it in writing. Um, they have to give you you can uh, they have to give you notice. They require the leave, the timing and duration of the leave, uh, but they don't have to have to mention the law. Um, if they request you use vacation or PTO, um, uh, you can't ask them if it's for FMLA or CFRA, um, but if, it's den- if you deny them the vacation and they say it may be a, a qualifying purpose, then you've got to ask some questions. Um, you can require advance notice of at least 30 days if it's foreseeable. So for example, like if they want to take time off for baby bonding, you can require that they give you at least 30 days advance notice because usually a baby being born is something they can anticipate. You know, if it's for a surgery, for example, where they're going to be off work, You can require them for advance. Ask them for advance notice, but if it's unforeseeable, um, then no advance notice is required. Let's go to the next one. Generally speaking, you have to reinstate them to their same position or something with equivalent uh, equivalent salary, benefits, and terms and conditions of employment. Exceptions would be um, uh, fraudulent obtaining of leave, which is a little bit of a gray area, but if they would be terminated for other legitimate reasons, you can terminate. There's a key employee exception, which rarely applies. Uh, and there's, if you're laying off or terminating for other reasons that would have occurred regardless of the leave, uh, then you can go ahead and take that action. So if you're, you know, reducing your, the size of your herd and you're, and you're laying somebody off for that reason, and it would have been, happened other than, you know, regardless of the leave, um, then you can go ahead and do it, even though somebody's on leave. Go to the next one. They did expand parent to include parents in law. Um, And there's a pilot mediation program for small employers if there's disputes where the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which actually they just renamed the California Civil Rights uh, Department or Civil Rights Agency. Um, uh, So there is a a mediation program um, which requires employees to seek mediation with you before they sue you. But that's only if you're uh, five to 19 employees. Um, And, you know, policy should be updated to make sure that um, uh, it reflects the current state of the law. Let's go to the next slide. Um, And then this is just a summary. I'm assuming Anya is going to give out these materials. This is just kind of a summary of what the changes have been over the last couple of years to the CFRA. So I'm not going to go through this in detail. Like I said, if you guys want... Um, to do a seminar on leave management. What I would do is I would do a seminar that covers uh, CFRA, but also covers um, workers' comp leave, other types of disability leave, and sick and vacation leave. So we can kind of cover all that stuff together because they integrate together. Uh, and I'm more than happy to do a um, a webinar or an in-person seminar on those things if you want me to. Just let, uh, let Western know and we'll put something together um, whenever you guys are ready. Let's go, uh, keep going. Um, We have a law now that requires personnel files to be retained for four years, and they have listed on examples of what they consider to be a personnel file, which would be employment applications if you have them, uh, any sort of payroll authorization forms like direct deposit or deductions from wages, any discipline or uh, commendation notices or termination notices, notices of layoff, leave of absence, vacation, notices of wage garnishment um, or attachment, uh, educational training notices and records, performance appraisals and reviews, and attendance records. You can define um, internally what you'll what you'll what's going to be in a personnel file, so everybody understands what needs to be maintained, um, and then have you know record retention policies that make sure that you keep these things for at least four years. Let's go to the next next slide. The uh, Supreme Court has decided that federal law, despite having no explicit protection for uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, has decided that federal civil rights laws do protect um, employees on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. That sort of discrimination has long been um, a violation of California law, but it is now clearly unlawful under both state and federal law to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity um we don't see a lot of it in dairy but again in the last few years i've seen more of it i have yet to have a gender identity case uh in dairy but i currently have two active cases that involve discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation on dairies so it is a real thing that we need to be aware of let's go to the next one um the uh DFEH was renamed the California Civil Rights Agency, but it's the same function. They are allowed to sue employers to directly enforce the law, uh, and in particular, um, uh, to enforce things like um, systemic or large-scale violations of civil rights laws. Large employers are now required, that means over 100 employees are now required to submit um, employee pay data by race and gender. um, in order to examine whether there is um, wage discrimination going on in, in violations of the Equal Pay Act. And the uh, the agency's gotten sort of increasingly aggressive in recent years, including filing more lawsuits against employers. Um, so it's just something to be aware of that that we may see more activity. I have not seen it as much in dairy, but I represent a lot of farm labor contractors, and they have really been after farm labor contractors over the last few years. So. Uh, be aware that we may see some more state activity um, in terms of um, protections against discrimination, which is one of the reasons I think getting some industry-wide anti-discrimination and anti-civil rights training will help, or anti-harassment training, uh, is will help us to protect ourselves against some risk. Risky times, we live in a lot of litigation and um, increasingly assertive government agencies. Um, You know, we still have the same problems we've had for a long time in dairy in terms of wage and hour. Those problems have either stayed the same or intensified, um, as well as um, increasing pressure and sort of the non-discrimination anti-sexual harassment front. So it is something that we need to be aware of and we need to be careful of. Um, But we do have solutions. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, We don't have to fail. We can't, we may not be able to eliminate risk, but we can reduce risk and we can contain risk and we can be proactive about risk. But it starts with you guys. Like we we are really proud to represent you guys and we're really proud to be a resource for you guys. But I would love to be a proactive resource in reducing risk rather than defending against risk. So we're here, we're happy to help. The association is happy to help. Um, Let us know and let the association know what can we do to help you and i'm i'll make this commitment to you that i will go anywhere in the state that you want me to go if you want me to do stuff in person i'll do webinars like this anytime you want me to do them on any subject related to employment that you want you know you want to do workers comp you want to do harassment training you know we can do those things by webinar we can do those things by in person you guys Let us know where the demand exists and we will do everything in our power uh, to meet it and I know Western will work really productively with us to make sure that we can meet those demands. Other than that, that's all I have for today unless there are additional questions. Um, And then other than that, you know, let us know what we can need what we can do for you. Don't be a stranger you can call me on my cell phone, you're never bothering me. Um, You can reach out to me through the association. But I'm always happy to be available to you guys, and I'm generally available all the time. I mean, day or night, weekends, holidays, I don't care. I've taken calls over the years at all different times. If you do call me and you don't get me or you get my voicemail on my cell phone, leave me a message and I'll get back to you within a few hours. It's very rare that you don't hear back from me right away. And if for some reason you're having trouble tracking me down, call my office. They'll track me down and get me to you um and and we'll make sure we answer your questions because there there are no where my dogs are being annoying but um there are no bad questions um uh, there are no dumb questions there's only questions that you didn't get an answer to and we are happy to help you with anything no matter how big or some. are there any questions,
2: questions from from our fantastically patient audience um 90 minute webinars having this many people stay on um doesn't happen so Tony, you must have been uh, fairly interesting, but are there any questions that anyone has? This is your opportunity to literally solicit free legal advice. Oh, there's one in the chat. Hold on just a minute. So um, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for your multiple questions today. Uh, Rachel Westine is asking um, if the split shift premium, she wants you to expand on it a bit.
3: Yeah, I can do that. Um... So a split shift occurs anytime there is a break in the shift of more than an hour. So we see a lot of dairies where guys will come and they'll milk and then they'll leave for, you know, sometimes three or four hours and they'll come back and milk again. That would be an example of a split shift. So there's two challenges with the split shift. Number one, a lot of times that milking shift, part of it is over five hours. If it's over five hours, that big break in the middle won't qualify as a meal break because they've worked more than five hours before they got it. And anytime that they work a split shift, they're entitled to a split shift premium, which means that day they get paid a dollar amount. In, in addition to their regular pay for the day, they get paid a dollar amount that is equal to one hour at minimum wage. So come January, when minimum wage goes up to 1550 an hour, that means they'll get paid whatever their hourly wages are for their hours plus an additional 1550. And that 1550 will show on their check stub as a split shift premium. The split shift premium um, only applies to uh, employees who do not live on the premises. So if you're providing housing for your employees at the ranch, they don't get the split shift premium. Now, I have seen it where dairies provide a house for the employee in town they will still get the split shift premium because even though housing is being provided by the employer, it's not at the work premises. Um, And then the other issue with the split shift premium is that the split shift premium is offset by amounts the employee earns above minimum wage. So let's say you have, and just to keep the math simple, let's say you have an employee where minimum wage is $15 an hour. You have an employee who's making $20 an hour. And that employee works um, two four hour shifts in the day. So, uh, four hours, then a split shift break, and then a second part of the split shift that's also four hours. So, that's eight hours work times um, $15 an hour, right? So, um, that employee, though, is I'm sorry, it's eight hours work times $20 an hour. That's $5 over that's $5 over minimum wage for um, those eight hours. So that's $40 over minimum wage. That $40 is more than the split shift premium, which would be 15, so it wipes out the split shift premium. So you take that hour minimum wage value and you subtract from it the amount the employee earned over minimum wage on their hourly wage for the day, and that amount offsets the premium. So if it's if the answer to that subtraction is zero or negative, then you don't have to pay the split shift premium. You essentially get credit for how much you pay the employee over minimum wage. Does that answer the the question, or is there any anything further about split shift premiums that had, that you were wondering about, Rachel?
2: Um, well, well, we do have. I'm not sure if Rachel knows. She can. Oh, she says thank you. You answered my question. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Um, so we do have another question about split shift. Um, popular conversation today. Mm-hmm. Um, to this anonymous attendee, is there a minimum number of hours you have to pay when they return for a split shift?
3: No, I think that the question is a confusion between the split shift premium or the split shift schedule and reporting time pay. So, reporting time um, pay is a rule that applies when something happens and the employee is provided less um, than half of their normal or scheduled shift. So let's say a dairy worker shows up, a milker shows up for work and they're supposed to work a nine hour day that day. They work for an hour and we have a massive breakdown of equipment at the dairy and they can't work and they go home after an hour. In that situation, they got less than half of their scheduled shift. So the employer has to pay them for half of the scheduled shift, but never less than two and never more than four hours, right? So that was a nine hour day. They got less than half. They have to get paid four hours for the day. Half would be four and a half, but it's never more than four. So they'd have to get paid four hours for that day because of the equipment breakdown. Now, there's a bunch of exceptions to to reporting time pay. you know, One of them being a failure of utilities. So if all the equipment failed because say the electricity went out, you don't have to pay that reporting time pay because that's a, a cause beyond the employer's control, uh, the failure of utilities. If an employee has to report a second time in the day, so say they get sent home after an hour, the equipment gets fixed, comes back online, And so they they call the employee and say, hey, we got everything fixed, you know, two hours later, we got everything fixed, we need you to come back and milk the cows. When the employee reports to work the second time, they have to get paid at least two hours because they came back to work. But that's a specific rule that applies to that reporting time pay scenario where they got sent home. You could have a split shift that's very short where they come back and there's, you know, a, a minimal amount of time afterwards. The problem you would have there is that if you have too short of a period of time, with a big break in between, employees aren't going to want to come back because it's not worth their while. So I, I'm I'm trying to think of an example where I've seen a really short split shift of that nature, and I haven't seen one. If you can give me a more specific example, I can talk more about it.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, yes, uh, whoever asked that question, uh, they're li- they're listed as anonymous, which is fine. And um, if there are any further questions or if Tony did not satisfy your question, feel free to type another question. But we have another question, Tony. This is uh, yeah. this is good. So personnel files. Do we keep I-9s for only four years as well?
3: I love I-9 questions because one of my best seminar trainings is on I-9s. And if you guys ever want to do an I-9 webinar, I will pat myself on the back of it. I do the best I-9 training for agriculture that you're ever going to see anywhere. I-9s are a whole different rule because that's federal law and your I-9s should not be kept in your personnel file. Your I-9s should be kept separate from your personnel files because if your I-9s ever get audited, you wanna be able to just give over your I-9s, not give over everything. And same thing, if somebody requests copies of your personnel files, you don't wanna give the I-9s with those because I-9s are very sensitive. So I-9s have a special rule. I-9s have to be kept Um, three years from the date of hire or one year from the date of termination, whichever is later, which is a rule that confuses people. Here's how it works. And it's just designed to cover short-term employment. If you have somebody who works for you for six months and then they quit, you have to keep that I-9 for three years from the date of hire, because that will be longer than one year from the date of termination. If the employee has worked for you for five years and then they quit, you're gonna keep the I-9 for one year from the date of termination. I'm sorry, I have it backwards. If they work for you for a short period like that, you're going to keep it for one year after now. I've got, I've got myself confused. Hold on. Let me double check. the This is why it's good to ask these questions and why this is one of the most common ones. All right. So first of all, first of all, you have to keep the I-9 for the entire duration of the time that the employee worked for you. So if employee works for you for 25 years, you're going to keep that I-9 the whole time. Okay. Um, if they gave you a permanent resident alien card, you actually never have to update the I-9s even when the card expires, because their legal status doesn't expire. I don't know if you guys can see this, but this dog is behind me chasing flies, driving me crazy. Um, and I guess it's good that she's chasing flies. All right, so, um, yeah, it's three years from the date of hire or one year from the date of termination, whichever is later, okay? so. If they work for you for six months, you're going to keep it for three years from uh, for one year after they they left. I'm sorry, three years from three years from date of hire. So it's three years after date of hire, or one year after the date the employment ends. So if they work for you for six months, you're going to keep it for three years from the date of hire. If they work for you for five years, you're going to keep it for one year from the date employment ends because that's the later date. So if if they work for you for essentially, if they work for you for less than three years, you're going to keep it three years from date of hire. If they work for you for more than three years, you're going to keep it uh, for one year after the date of of termination. Hey, guys, I have three dogs in here with me and they're all of a sudden decided that this is the time to play. So, um, hey, stop. So, um, sorry, so just to clarify, let me go through it one more time. Three years from the date of hire or one year from date of termination, whichever is late. So what that is, it means for practical purposes is if the person worked for you, for three years or more, you're gonna keep it for one year after the date of termination. If they work for you for less than three years, you'll keep it for three years from the date of hire. Does that make sense?
2: It made sense to me, Tony, but I think um, you might wanna put it in your uh, calendar. I think as we approach the end of the year, it might be very helpful for you to write an article on our update clarifying this in writing.
3: Yeah, I can do an, uh, an article for you on I-9s generally with just kind of some, some tips for I-9s for people. Um, by the way, we do um, I-9 audits regularly at my office. Um, so if you ever have questions about whether you're doing I-9s correctly, um, I-9s are great because if you're doing them correctly, they absolutely protect you from immigration violation liability. Um, It's one of my favorite things because of that, because if we're doing it correctly, even if the employee is undocumented, we're protected. Um, And so it's a good thing to audit those periodically. And honestly, usually dairies don't have a large number of um, I-9s. So we can do an audit on those for, you know, for really cheap because we do those based on the number of forms that we have to spend time looking at. you know, so I do them for a farm labor contract that has thousands of employees. It's very time consuming and, um, and it can get pricey, but for dairy, they're usually really inexpensive to do I-9 audits. So I'm always happy to audit those as well, but I'll, I'll do an, um, an article for you guys Anya, on, on kind of I-9 issues and record retention. So we make sure that there's clarification there.
2: Awesome. Well, are there any additional questions? And you guys, if you don't feel like or can't chat in the chat function or in the Q&A function, you're always welcome to unmute yourself and ask Tony a question.
3: And if you're not comfortable asking a question in this setting, I will reemphasize again, please, please, please feel free to reach out to me and and, and call me, I'm I'm happy to be helpful. Uh, My cell phone number, again, is area code 559-801-2226, and you are, I give that number out because you are more than welcome to call me, and I will be very nice to you, and I will do everything I can to help you with your questions. So um, if you don't want to do that, you can reach out to me through your rep at the association. They're always happy to track me down, or if you want to call me at the office, my office manager's name is Melissa Gutierrez, that's 559-432-3000. Um, And Melissa will be happy to uh, put us in touch with each other, um, and we'll do everything we can to help.
2: And thank you, everyone, for participating today. Again, follow-up questions, we welcome them. Uh, We really hope that our members find this stuff um, very valuable um, and a valuable part of your Western United uh, membership. With that, we will uh, end the recording, and I hope everyone has a beautiful Tuesday. Are you tired of hearing that the main way to save water
1: is fallowing? Are you tired of seeing articles about how alfalfa and corn waste water? At Common Good Water, we combine the best-in-class subsurface drip system and precision crop management services, including pest control. Our verification program qualifies for public funding, and we want to help you continue farming in California. Contact your groundwater sustainability agency and ask how you can work with Common Good Water. Visit commongoodwater.com. Pacific Gas and Electric is here to remind you that signs keep you safe. Sections of our natural gas transmission pipeline travel underground and beneath agricultural land. For the safety of you, your family, and your employees, pipeline markers are placed to indicate the approximate location of the pipe as a reminder to use extra care. Removing a pipeline marker creates a serious safety hazard. To have additional markers placed or report damaged or missing markers, please call your PG&E account manager or our Agricultural Customer Service Center at 877-311-3276. To learn more, visit www.pge.com agsafety. Remember, signs
0: keep you safe. Definitely some good information in there. You can always re-listen to the episode to catch anything you missed or just to use as a tool later on. Uh, other than that, everyone have a good week and thank you for listening. Thank you to the Western United Dairies generous business sponsors, The Morning Star Company, Holt of California, Farm Credit Alliance, PG&E, Arata, Swingle, Van Egmond and Goodwin Law Offices, Yosemite Farm Credit, F&R Act Services, Moss Energy Works, California Dairy Magazine, Bennett Environmental, and Common Good Water. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our guests, Please note that the opinions expressed in the Seen and Heard podcast may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors or our sponsors. If you would like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com.